0: That was a fantastic overview, and uh, again, it's it's also my pleasure to be here to speak to this group um, and to work with Dr. Clifford. When I wrote my first grant in 2001, he was an advisor and has been a mentor and advisor uh, since that time. I've been studying HIV-related cognitive impairment for that amount of time, but you should know I'm a geriatrician by training. So uh, internal medicine, geriatric medicine, then I did two years of neurobehavior, and actually most of my clinics are older people without HIV who have cognitive disorders, but about 25% of my time in clinics is taking care of HIV patients with cognitive problems, and all of my NIH research is in HIV. So I I may have a bit of a practical approach, and if you leave this talk with more questions than you have now, then I've probably done my job. If you think you know how to handle everything without any uh, help, um, you may be, i um, not listening to everything that I'm saying because it's still quite a conundrum. So I'm going to tell you how I work up some of the patients that I see, some of the in-office evaluations that can be done, some things not to miss in a workup, and maybe give you some tips on when you want to refer cases because if 50% of your patients are having cognitive impairment, you, you have to do some kind of triage as to which cases need to, to move forward. I thought I'd start by asking you how often memory and thinking problems are seen in, the, in HIV patient encounters in your clinic. Seldom, about a quarter of a time, about half the time, or far more than half the time. Great. Um, So actually, that's that's perfect. So about a quarter of the time, people, maybe these are the ones that are having most of the symptoms. It seems like that's the highest number. I want to follow this up by asking about your comfort level with this. Uh, How comfortable are you in working up cognitive symptoms in the office setting? I'm very comfortable. I'm relatively comfortable. I'm not comfortable. There's more that I don't know than I know. Or help. This is a black box. Perfect, good. So um, that's about where I thought we would be. It's it's interesting. I I hear from clinicians quite frequently, and there are certain questions that come up time and time again. How do I screen? When do I do LP? When do I get an image? Um, What should I do for lab tests? How how worried should I be about CSF escape? So I'm going to try to talk through some of those issues now with a couple case scenarios. First, I want to talk a little bit about the presentation of cognitive disorders in HIV. uh, So if you look back at the data that were published on brain specimens before we had antiretroviral therapies and look to see where the brain, where HIV is in the brain, the answer is it's everywhere. The HIV virus gets into the brain, and unlike neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease, where there's selective vulnerability in certain areas of the brain degenerate before others, in HIV, it's ubiquitous, although it seems to be more in the deep structures than in the cortical structures. And as a result of that, this can inform some of the uh, presentation of these uh, patients in your clinic. Unlike Alzheimer's disease, where there's a focused memory problem, what you're more likely to see with HIV patients is a more global problem, and particularly in in slowness and processing speed, which can affect um, every aspect of cognitive testing. There often can be a behavioral aspect to this and the most common thing that I see is apathy associated with this. So this is truly a a, kind of a beautiful, if you will, neurobehavioral disorder because not only is there the cognitive component which you hear about in terms of memory, concentration, attention, but there's also a behavioral component to this typically apathy, depression, but sometimes people can present with mania and other behavioral disorders. And then there's often a slowness in motor movement that in more severe forms can actually affect gait and and, uh, major motor problems. So if you look at the neuropsychological studies that have looked to see what areas of testing are most sensitive to identifying people with cognitive impairment, it's, it's actually quite broad. People will see psychomotor slowing, slowness in response times, problem with attention and concentration, executive dysfunction, and I think of executive dysfunctions as the kinds of things that you need to put together a party, multiple steps and so forth, or working memory where you have to hold a piece of memory in your mind while you do something else and then refer back to it. These are the kinds of problems your patients probably tell you about, and truly we can pick this up on testing as well. In more advanced disease, you can see frank slowing of motor function. An unusual phenomenon that we don't see in other dementia syndromes, and as Dr. Clifford pointed out, we really don't see HIV dementia as much. But in HIV impairment, we see a fluctuation. So people may be doing well for six months and then less well for six months and better for six months. And I see this in my clinic. Even patients who were first diagnosed with cognitive problems in the late 1990s have had periods where they've been able to work periods when they've not been able to work been able to work and so forth but the fluctuations have been shown in clinical studies too. these data are from my work in Hawaii and there's also been another published work out of Johns Hopkins so we definitely see this so the question you would have is you know how do you confirm cognitive problems in the clinical setting so to kind of walk you through this I made up this case of Sharon needles a patient that we're going to work our way through so sharon's a 58 year old caucasian woman known in your clinic for over 10 years she was initially diagnosed with hiv because of you can guess from her name iv drug use she presented with pcp and she had a very low cd4 nader five cells you treated the pcp and put her on a combination uh, pills adobudine lamobudine and efavrin fairly typical She's done very, very well. She's been completely adherent for 10 years. Her viral load's been undetectable since the day you started her. Um, Her CD4 cell count is 380. She's not using any drugs and you feel pretty confident of that. Now, Sharon tells you that she's having some memory problems. It seems to be affecting her work. She's made some errors in multitasking. She's had new interpersonal conflicts. The symptoms don't bother her, but she fears she may lose her job. Symptoms have been present for about five years. She doesn't seem to think that they're getting worse, but I would caution you that she is coming to see you for a reason. So I think this is actually a fairly typical case. This is, uh, I mean, there are, this is probably 50, 50, if not 70% of the people who are referred to my clinic or that I see in my longitudinal studies. And uh, so I would ask you, which of the following tests is most likely to identify cognitive impairment in this setting? The mini mental state exam, MMSE, the HIV dementia scale, HDS, the clock drawing task, uh, having symptoms is enough, there's no need to confirm on testing, or none of the above. None of these questions have exact answers, so you, you can't be wrong. Um, well, many of you are wrong. <laughs> I'll walk you through some of these tests and tell you what the problems are with them, and uh, we'll give you some options. Um, <laughs> that's too funny. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so the MMSE is in your toolbox. You learned as a medical student. You know where it is. You can grab it at any, prob- at any uh, moment. You know how to do it. You know it's quick. It's easy for you to do. You know how to interpret it. You want to use it, you, but you can't. It's not a test that's going to be very sensitive in this disease. The first 10 questions all relate to orientation, which is good for Alzheimer's disease, but it's not good for HIV dementia. There's very little that taps the domain of attention and working memory, which we think are probably the most sensitive, in treated patients with HIV, like Sharon Needles. There are two published reports that say it doesn't work for hand. In our clinic, of people over 60 years of age, Uh, with uh, cognitive problems uh, with HIV, with good treatment. The MMSE in people who did not have impairment was 29. The MMSE in patients with impairment, the average was 28. So this test is just not going to have enough sensitivity for this disease. So what about the HIV dementia scale? It was designed to identify HIV dementia. And as Dr. Clifford pointed out, HIV dementia is quite rare now. And in fact, it probably still works quite well to identify your worst cases of dementia, the HDS. It'll tap some memory with, with, uh, with a, a task of registration and memory recall. There's some psychomotor speed, which is useful. There's some attention testing, which is actually taken out of the version you're probably using because you're probably, if you are using it, you're either using the modified or the International HIV Dementia Scale. And the antipsychotic eye movement for attention was taken out because it's difficult to do. It's difficult to train. It's difficult to, to, to test on a, on a consistent manner. But it's, it is been shown at least in one study to be the most sensitive aspect of this battery, and it's taken out of the, the one that you guys are using most likely, and then the construction portion at the end. So it does tap things, it does work for HIV dementia, but it's insensitive for, in, for a more mild disease, and there are a number of studies which will show that at this point. Um, so I, I don't need to belabor this uh, much more, uh, but it, it's not a test that I would, in, in the effort of time, I'll skip this slide and you can read it, but it's not a test that I would recommend using. So, both Dr. Clifford and I have looked at this Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which you're receiving now as a handout, because we think it has at least some reason uh, to be effective in HIV, although the data are, are kind of mixed and not as good as we'd like to see. Dr. Clifford's a little bit further along in testing this in his patients than I am with mine, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time telling you about this test. It's free. It's online. If you Google MOCA Montreal, it'll come right up. It's available in 20, 30 languages, although it hasn't been, uh, it's been translated but not validated in those languages. And it'll also give you a step-by-step way to do it over three pages with how to score it. So it's free, easy to use. You just need to get a little bit familiar with it. I like this test because it has uh, at at the top it has a little bit of this follow the dots which um, is executive functioning, it still has a cube, it has a clock drawing task which allows you to use executive functioning as well as visual spatial skills. The memory testing has a couple trials with it and then you can see at the bottom the delayed recall that you actually only get points if you score correctly when I ask you for the five words again but then you give cues. And you can give cues that are first a category cue and the directions will tell you how and a multiple-choice cue. And what I find with my HIV patients is they don't recall it, but you give them cues and it comes back. And this is a subcortical pattern that's atypical of Alzheimer's disease, but we see in HIV quite a bit. Um, It taps a couple other things, and uh, I'll point out these two cases. That These are from my over-60 cohort. And you can see the first patient's having a, a terrible time with a trail making test, um, a difficult time getting, getting started on it. Really, actually, this person had some visual praxis as well, couldn't copy the design. So if you look at this, this part here in this delayed recall, you can see this person was able to recall with cues, but really didn't get any of them. Likewise, this person didn't get any of them, but recalled with cues. And this is a pattern that I see quite typically in my HIV patients. There's some more attention in here, and so the score here, 25, the score here, 21. These are some of my more impaired patients, but neither of these had dementia. Um, these cases were either ANI or MND, mild neurocognitive disorder. So I think there's some potential. This was uh, data that David Clifford uh, show, showed us at the Croix meeting. And unfortunately, the, the performance characteristics were not as good as I'd like to see them. At a cut point of 26, he found a 59% sensitivity. If you increase it to 28, you're about 80%. So it has some efficacy, but it's not the golden answer. Unfortunately, because these are working memory and executive functioning tests, Um, It's difficult to tap that quickly. But if you're going to use something, this is probably the best recommendation we can come up with right now, unless you're going to do a mini battery of cognitive tests or go into the the realm of doing computer tests, which also have limitations. And I I wish at this point I could tell you or refer you to a review article on this, but uh, we just um, responded to the the reviewer's critique, and I suspect it will be, published, but we did review all the cognitive tests for uh, a journal and I hope it'll get published and you can get more detail on this. Um, So the MOCA has some theoretical benefit. Well, what about symptoms? Well, you can remember from Dr. Clifford's slide that the vast majority of patients with impairment fall into this asymptomatic and mild neurocognitive disorder. And I can tell you from the the charter data that he was pointing out that among the 45% of patients who had cognitive impairment, about two thirds of them were asymptomatic. So if you're going to depend on symptoms to find people who have cognitive impairment, you you need to be in the, you need to understand you're going to miss about two thirds of the cases. Now, what does that mean? Dr. Clifford pointed this out a little bit, but this is a study from uh, the UCSD group where they looked at people with all impairment, regardless of whether they had symptoms or not. And you can see that the people with impairment had difficulty with everyday function. We've started to look at this a little bit in our clinic Um, This is a functional performance test here of patients. and You can see that the the cases with impairment do worse. But what's very interesting is if you ask them how well they did on this functional test, everybody thinks they're average. doesn't matter where you fall. You think you're you're doing average on these tests. So I, I don't think that the HIV patients we're seeing, and in fact, most cognitive impaired patients, regardless of the etiology, they don't tend to retain insight into their ability to function. So I think there are real limitations in looking at that. I'm going to skip this slide on review, you can read it, it's in your um, notes, but I've said everything on this slide just so that we can keep on time and keep moving forward. And I did want to point out that there's more research going on in this field. People are looking at particularly computerized tests, also combination of neuropsychological tests may work better, but... Currently, there's not enough data to support using those, although I I think a lot more research needs to be done. I would also point out that if you're going to screen for cognitive impairment, please include a depression screen, whichever one is, is good for you. I think if patients are complaining of symptoms, Oftentimes, there's a the depression component, not always, but I think that the frequency of depression is also quite frequent. A cursory neurologic examination makes some sense because, as I told you, there's a behavioral, cognitive, and motor component. And if you find cognitive features and some neurologic features, I think that it may help you believe that this is a true uh, neurobehavioral syndrome. Um, so let's move on to Sharon needles so we can get into some of the workup of this case. Uh, neuropsychological testing demonstrates working memory deficits, and this seems to be affecting her verbal learning and memory. Her Beck depression inventory is elevated, so she's got some depressive symptoms. What would you do next with this patient? Treat for depression and reassure that, symptoms, uh, that these symptoms in HIV are common. Two, order lab tests, including thyroid function, syphilis, serology, liver function. Three, order a brain MRI. Four, refer to a specialist or none of the above. Quick, because uh, you jumped the gun on getting you. Hopefully, everybody hit the button quickly. My guess is very good. This is about what I would do as well. My guess is people would look for common things, which I uh, completely agree with. And so I thought I'd add a slide here to tell you my common workup, the kind of stuff that I typically do. Because there's no consensus statement on this, I can't tell you what you should do. And in fact, as I travel the country and I ask neurologists what they do. I find some variability in how aggressive they are, particularly in doing lumbar punctures. But what I typically do in a case like this is a careful neurologic examination, looking for signs of opportunistic infection in any way. I look at the CD4 cell history. I look for the risk factor of the nadir count. I look to see that the virus has been undetected in plasma for as long as Sharon's has been. I look at medications that could be affecting cognition, not just the antiretrovirals, but often pain medicines for neuropathy. I look at illicit drug use. I look at supplements that people are looking at to see if there's any place that I can make an impact. I look at key comorbidities, in particular, the cardiac, cerebrovascular morbidities, diabetes, hypertension, to make sure that they're well um, managed, but also liver function, liver uh, comorbidities. I do lab tests on, on nearly all these patients to try to understand all these things, including things like syphilis, a B12 level, thyroid function. I think about sleep apnea in some of my patients who have um, protuberant ab protributed abdomens or having sleeping problems to see if there are any signs and refer when I I think that's necessary. And and I always do get a brain image of some type in my patients. But, again, I am a referral center. Uh, People refer cognitive. I don't do primary HIV care. So take this with a grain of salt. But I think this is kind of a minimum workup myself in in what I would do in, in, in understanding a patient. So in Sharon Needle's case, uh, her neurologic exam demonstrates some inattention, neuropathy, increased tone. Her brain MRI is read as normal, and I, I look at all of these MRIs, but I don't expect that you be able to pick up nuance because it's not part of what you typically do, but reassuring that it's normal. A comprehensive workup, including B12 serum, RPR, are all normal um, on this case. So let's review her case. So she has a low CD4 cell nadir. She used IV drug uses. These are both risk factors for cognitive problems. But she's had undetectable plasma viral load for a decade. And her CD4 cell counts in normal range, making uh, an opportunistic infection quite unlikely. The symptoms in testing include both behavioral, motor, and cognitive findings. A typical workup is negative, including her RPR. The course is a little bit uh, helpful for me. She's had the symptoms for five years, but it's not clear. She may be getting worse, Uh, but it's been there for five years. You're fairly comfortable. That's true. And there's a possibility that there's a level of functional impairment. So the uh, $10 million question everybody wants me to give the golden answer to is, regarding an evaluation of her CSF, which of the following is true? Syphilis evaluation of CSF is needed. Given cognitive symptoms, it's likely that HIV-RNA will be detected in CSF. CSF evaluation is needed to exclude opportunistic infection, or lumbar puncture results are not likely to impact the approach or treatment of this patient. What do you think the answers are? I didn't give you the none of the above, so you have to commit. And there's no right answer. Well, there's a wrong answer, but there's no right answer. (laughs) So this is about where I would end up as well. Uh, In understanding this entire case, I think at this point, um, I would probably approach this initially anyways, without looking at CSF in this case, given this kind of history. And as I told you, there's no right or wrong answer. I think you have to use your clinical acumen and uh, refer when you're uncomfortable in these cases. But I can point out a couple things Uh, that may help you to understand this. First of all, as far as I know, there's only one really kind of algorithm that's been published. It's old at this point, six years ago, and it really doesn't help us understand a case like Sharon Needles, who is the most common case in your clinic. Someone who's had a long, kind of prolonged cognitive impairment syndrome. This algorithm is a little bit better uh, uh, for patients, particularly who aren't on antitravirals and present with cognitive problems. It's very clear you treat them. If they don't get better, I think they need to be tapped, intensified, and so forth. I think those types of situations are relatively clear. But I don't think we have as much clarity in the kinds of cases, at least, that I'm seeing on a regular basis. So what are the benefits of CSF evaluation in this case? Well, in cases of high suspicion, I think you need to look to rule out opportunistic infections. And in this case, with a negative RPR, I wouldn't feel uh, compelled to be looking for syphilis in CSF. And I, based on her history, her nonfocal neurologic examination, high CD4 cell count, et cetera., I feel comfortable that I'm not going to find anything. Can, uh, you can use it to look at immune activation, and when I do lumbar punctures on my patients, I look for virus, I look for white cell, I look for elevated protein, and I also look for oligoclonal bands and an IG index, because I think of them as subtle markers of inflammation. Um, in the patients, not because I'm looking for multiple sclerosis, but I can find immune activation using common tests that I look for. So you can look for immune activation in these cases. It may be more compelling for you to be more aggressive with them. You can evaluate for HIV-CSF escape, which people are most concerned about, and that's when the CSF virus is detectable, but the plasma virus is not detectable. Let me speak about this a little bit because I know this is something on your minds. There have been several cases of uh, discordant CSF and plasma viremia where the virus and plasma has been undetectable or very low and virus and CSF has been elevated and the patients present with a neurologic syndrome. And I can tell you that there are three cases reported in the Hopkins uh, case series of cases presented to the ER with meningoencephalitis. And there also is a European series of 11 cases for, from a referral center that had thousands of cases so it can give you some idea that this is likely to be a relatively rare clinical event. And these were people who presented with, for the most part, more than just cognitive symptoms, a cerebellar disorder, headaches, uh, a little bit of a different presentation than just the kind of cognitive symptoms we saw in this one case that I presented. But I can also tell you that if you look in a research setting and you look to very low levels, two copies per cc, you can see discordance in patients where it's a little higher in CSF than in plasma even among patients who are less than what we see clinically, less than 50 copies in plasma. And there seems to be some correlation with cognition. So there's some aspect to this viral detectability in CSF that we can't completely ignore. But using the clinical parameters that we have, less than 50 copies, the yield tends to be very, very low in terms of finding cases, particularly in a case that doesn't present in a manner that was seen in in some of these case series. This is the, the larger case series of 11 cases, and you can see the kinds of symptoms the patient's presented with, you know, persistent headaches, cerebellar ataxia, and so forth. So it was a little bit uh, different. And you can see in all these cases that the plasma viral load was low or undetectable and the CSF was uh, detectable. And I can tell you that all these patients improved when they altered the antiretroviral so that they were uh, either responding to the genotype done in CSF or they were increasing empirically the penetration but th- this is rare. I mean, these are case scenarios, and so it's not going to inform most of the patients that we see, or at least the data that we have currently uh, don't inform that well enough to to be saying that we should be looking in all cases. So some practical considerations is, of course, if you have an acute or subacute presentation, this is someone who needs a more aggressive workup. And and I would refer that person to uh, a a neurologist with expertise in this. So I don't think there's any question there. And I worry about people who have new neurologic findings uh, based on this publication as well. When I can't exclude opportunistic infection, I think a referral is needed. When I'm not comfortable excluding a referral and lumbar puncture is needed. And, and for my case, if I recommend changing therapy, I will sometimes, depending on what the patient wishes, I'll look, um, but it doesn't always inform whether I make the change, because sometimes I make the empiric change and the CSF is normal, just to see if I can help people. And, and this is not based on any literature that would support this. In fact, I think my next slide Uh, speaks to whether we should change for antiretrovirals. And you can see based on what Dr. Clifford showed you that she has a pretty good penetration. If you look at this combination, these are thought to be pretty good. This one not so good, but she's on two that penetrate relatively well. And in some of the cases, just making this switch from 3TC to FTC is one extra pill, but it's a very minimal change. Um, pushes people up, but there's no data to suggest that this is going to help her out. And this is the conundrum we're in right now in the study that Dr. Clifford is pointing out, is that we really need to help by getting this answer in research. And I would, if you have the opportunity to refer somebody to research around your area, I think that may be the best answer. I think the data are mixed with regard to intensification. The only randomized trial actually failed to show benefit when they intensified the treatment. Um, so we're, we're left in a little bit of a, a, a blind spot there as well. But as I mentioned to you, in all cases of CSF ESCAPE presented in these cases, they improved. So uh, keep that in mind as well, although it's a relatively uh, rare event. So what I end up doing is I end up being very practical about this. I talk to the patient after I've looked at all other things that I can possibly look at. And if I'm comfortable that the viral load has been undetectable, adherence is good. Um, If it hasn't, that's the first thing to go after, is to make sure the plasma viral load is undetectable and consistently so. Then I think about practical things that aren't going to cause a lot of problems for the patient that may increase the CPE. Um, keeping in mind and working very carefully with the primary clinician that I'm not limiting options down the road or or increasing the risk for other comorbidities uh, because I think looking at the entire patient becomes very important when you're, you're working on such soft data in the brain. So I'll tell you a case where I ran into trouble just to close this out to tell you that this is just not easy. I had a patient who was referred to me who was almost 80 years old. He had cognitive problems for two years. They found out that he had HIV because he had um, leukopenia, and he was gay. And his doctor said, well, he's 79, but I'll check anyways, and he was HIV positive. His neuropsychological testing confirmed impairment, and he had uh, mild atrophy on his MRI exam. So, uh, when, and, and, and he had broad deficits on cognitive testing in a manner that made me worry that he had both HIV, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. So he has prostate cancer, he has uh, heart disease, and important to this history, he had severe aortic stenosis with some consideration for valve replacement, but he was uh, functionally doing well. And he was on few meds for a 79-year-old, actually, but the typical ones with blood pressure and cholesterol. And uh, his CD4 cell count was 209, his viral load is 42,000, he had broad susceptibility, he'd already seen infectious disease and they were intending to start antiretrovirals. So I called his infectious disease doc and I said, this is a case where we should treat this man with intensive CNS penetrating drugs. He said, you've got to be nuts. This is a man who's living by himself and is cognitively impaired, he needs to take one pill a day. So I, I thought about this and I said, well, in fact, the biggest bang we're going to get for this guy is getting his plasma viral load undetectable as fast as we can. And yes, there will be additional, uh, uh, there, there may be additional benefit if we intensify this person. But the primary care doc was absolutely correct that we needed to get the virus undetectable as person. So we treated him with a combination one-day pill. He responded very well. He was adherent. After three months, he came back to see me and he was no better. He was still as cognitively impaired. He was apathetic, his gait was slow. He had a hypomimia, little facial movement. I was very worried there was a component of HIV dementia. So we talked about intensifying his regimen. We did intensify his regimen, and I'm not gonna tell you which drugs we used, but you'll figure it out if uh, you treat HIV. You can probably tell from the side effects he had. The first one was he became very anemic and no one caught it. Until he was lightheaded, he went to the hospital, he needed two units of blood. Doing this to somebody who has severe aortic stenosis is not good. Uh, so w- we were in big trouble very, very quickly. We made another change. He had liver function test abnormalities for the next one. But he was able to do okay on them, and we were able to maintain him on the medicines, and liver function abnormalities leveled out. I saw him back. He was better. He was walking faster. His affect was improved. He had less hypomymia. He still was incredibly amnestic. I tapped him. He had no virus, no evidence of inflammation. I started treatment for Alzheimer's disease. So it's a very humbling experience to cause these kinds of problems, but I thought this case would bring back to you that it's complex and that we have to think of the entire patient while we are very practical about looking at these issues with treatment for the brain. So my summary, cognitive impairment is significantly uh, important to our clinics. The screening tools have a lot of limitations. I would not recommend using the MMSE or the HDS unless you want to look for only severe disease or Alzheimer's disease. Instead, we have to come up with better tools, and until their publications identifying better tools, the MOCA might be a reasonable choice for you. Research is needed. There are many things that can be done in the primary care setting for a workup. I hope I've pointed some of these out. Referring to specialized centers will probably be needed a lot of times. And then I've pointed out the mixed literature on CNS penetration studies. And I think it's best for us to take a little time and you can ask both Dr. Clifford and I some specific questions and maybe we can clarify this a little bit more. Thank you.
1: Thank you both to our wonderful speakers. Uh, Questions can come to the microphone, and we'll take uh, questions on the cards for both Dr. Clifford and Dr. Valcour. Yes, please. Um, Yes, hi. My name is uh, Francine Cornos. I'm a psychiatrist at Columbia University, and I've worked in this area for a long time, so of course I have various psychiatric biases. But what I was going to say is that in the slide that you showed, Dr. Clifford, of comorbidities, there was a huge difference in cognitive, rates of cognitive impairment between people with minimal versus severe, going from 40% in minimal to 80% in severe. And it makes me wonder, given how frustrating it's been to come up with good treatments, whether it's worth studying and being more aggressive about those comorbidities in the hopes of getting some better outcomes. Of course, I do think about depression because in its severe form, it has very significant cognitive impairment. So while I think the work just on the, you know, at the neurological level is extremely important, I just wonder at the clinical level whether it would be helpful to understand how treating other comorbidities would work.
2: Um, an, an excellent point. Thank you for, for bringing it up, and, and you're correct. The uh, the addition of the comorbidities raised the prevalence of cognitive impairment to, to shocking levels in our, our cohort. And it's hard to, it's hard to avoid the, the notion that um, depression and, and very treatable psychiatric disorders that, that for every good reason, humanitarian and personal and lifestyle and life-preserving reasons uh, should be treated. Um, it, it's really critical to, to treat all the things that you find that you can treat to optimize the status of the patient. That said, um, in terms of the actual performance on quantitative testing, the contribution of psychiatric disorders, to me, it, is really uh, strikingly small. So, so in terms of the life and quality of the patient and the perception of how they're doing, The psychiatric disorders are really, really critical and important to treat. To fix the damage that was done in the testing, actually it was surprising, but there is almost equal depression in the two groups, uh, impaired and unimpaired. The complaints are much greater in the in the psychiatrically affected individuals. But you know, absolutely, uh, depression is a life-threatening issue. People kill themselves when they're depressed. And so it's really important if there's any suspicion of depression, look for it, measure it as, as Victor said. You know, do a, do a depression scale when you're uh, working up this, and, and do treat anybody that has significant uh, depression the best you can.
1: Right, thank you. Uh, just sort of a related comorbid question was, uh, how about testosterone and cognitive impairment in HIV? You guys want to comment on that?
2: Um, Victor, help me. Um, um, the women have cognitive impairments almost as often as men do. I, I, you know, I don't, I think, again, testosterone is not really what makes the brain thrive. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it's good if, if you're used to testosterone, it's good to have it. Um, but to my knowledge, it's not going to fix cognitive impairment. Is there, can you help me? <laughs> no, I, don't have
0: a, I don't have a lot to add to that. I, I think that the, the data are not terribly supportive but the, it, it typically is not evaluated uh, terribly well. I think people have looked at it in Alzheimer's disease as well with mixed responses. I don't think it's going to be the golden uh, answer.
1: And the audience here, thank you. you I don't, is this on? Um, could you speak to the overlap with traumatic brain injury? I do health care for the homeless and a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is everything that we know we're missing with TBI in our patients. And just do you go with both of them or do you just figure, because these folks have HIV, it must be that, or we never looked, or...?
0: Well, I I can tell you that they're usually excluded from our studies. Um, And most of our studies uh, with people, uh, and maybe the charter was different, I don't know, but if they have a head injury with loss of consciousness greater than an hour, or cognitive sequelae, they've been excluded. And I think that's based on the assumption that it has a pretty large impact and can impact cognitive testing.
2: Right, so, so the, the charter uh, study is different in that we did not exclude people for, for head trauma, but it was that group that included a number that had significant head traumas as well as uh, chronic HIV with variable degrees of control that had the 80% impairment. So, um, you know, unfortunately, um, in terms of therapy, there, there may be ways to help people with uh, uh, traumatic brain injury to compensate and protect and change their, their uh, life uh, in ways that are helpful. But in terms of therapy, we don't have a lot to offer. When we're doing research where we're trying to test therapies to help HIV associated cognitive disorder and we generally have to exclude those people because that's not likely to get better from the same causes and so the patients become less informative. But as a clinician to, to realize that these are additive probably and, and might even be more than additive uh, so if you have two sort of moderate reasons why the brain may be dysfunctional, um, it, it can really be a problem. And I think to understand and work with them at whatever level you can, recognizing that they both may be contributing is, is uh, the way you have to function as a clinician. Thank
1: you. Let me just uh, take one more question, and I gave you some cards. Perhaps you can think about them for your workshops. But uh, a good question up here is the role of a efavirenz and does long-term use well, Affect <laughs> cognition adversely.
2: <laughs> okay, Well that that um, we can end with some uh, actual data. <laughs> uh, so, so if avarins, uh you know, it's striking. It's such a widely used drug, and it clearly affects the brain. And we just ask many, if not most, people that take it, and they they recognize that it's doing something to to the brain. So, so we we have no quarrel with that. Um, And and there are people, most people, as as you know, um, can take it and the worst effects uh, sort of wash out in the first month of use. So there's a population that can start it and with forewarning um, stick with it and then can tolerate it for for years. does it affect performance? And so, so in the 5095 ACTG study, uh, I took the opportunity where there was placebo-blinded uh, randomized experience with efavirenz or not. So a large group of people who thought they might be getting efavirenz and weren't and, and on a matched population that were. And we, we demonstrated this acute symptomatic impact of efavirenz but it washed out entirely in the first month and we measured their performance with quantitative tests and the performance was statistically the same on or off of favrins. and we had the opportunity to follow this group for three years and the long story was that there wasn't any decline as you might have expected to see if it were a toxic drug that was, you know, sort of whittling away at neurons in the brain. Nothing to suggest that that was happening. So I was considerably reassured by this uh, long-term uh, exposure with a baseline performance that, that this drug is not dangerous in the toxic sense. Some people just can't take it, though, because it really messes with their brains.
1: Thank you all both so much. Great. Yeah.